Hi, this is Dale Buchanan, the host of Puppy Talk Podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know of my new book, The Complete Puppy Training Manual. It's available on Amazon in four formats Kindle ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. You can find it on Amazon right now. It's called The Complete Puppy Training Manual, and I will put a link in the show notes of this episode. I'm Dale Buchanan, and this is Puppy Talk, the podcast that offers advice on how to raise a healthy, happy, and obedient puppy. This podcast is sponsored by Top Gun Dog Training. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast now so you don't miss a single episode of Puppy Talk. Welcome to this episode of Puppy Talk. Today we have a very special guest, Maura Heckenleitner a doctor of veterinary medicine and certified separation anxiety trainer. Mora is a founding board member of the Chilean Association of Professional Dog Trainers, which is the equivalent to the APDT in Chile. She has spent the last 12 years offering consultation services to pet owners and teaching courses to dog trainers. Mora is a speaker on the topic of separation anxiety giving seminars internationally in English and Spanish. She currently resides in Connecticut and helps dogs and their families from all over the world overcome separation anxiety. Be sure to check out her website at separationanxietydog.com, where she has a course for dog owners and dog trainers on treating separation anxiety in your puppy and dog. And today, she's going to help us learn more about separation anxiety, how to treat separation anxiety, and how to prevent separation anxiety in puppies. So welcome, Maura. Thank you, Dale. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. First of all, let's get started by defining what is separation anxiety, because a lot of people, including myself, don't know the clinical, the real definition of that. They think they know, well, my dog has separation anxiety, but what, how do you define that? That's actually a great question, and you're right. There's so much information out there that it's sometimes hard to really grasp what the problem really is. So separation anxiety, we define it as basically the panic of being left alone. We can also call it a syndrome, uh, which means a group of signs that the dog displays when, always, when he's left alone. And those signs suggest that the dog is in distress. Okay, and this means, uh, therefore, that being alone for that dog is totally aversive. And he doesn't have the tools needed to cope with that situation. So even if he tries hard once the, 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 his humans are gone, there's going to be a point when that absence is going to become aversive to him and he's not going to be able to handle it anymore. And from that point on that we actually call threshold, the dog will continue escalating which is going to translate in more overt signs and more intense signs that aren't going to stop until someone is back, until the absence is done. Can you define threshold? Because a lot of people get a little bit confused by that. Yes, definitely. Threshold is the moment when the absence, when the stimulus of being left alone becomes aversive to the dog. And it's marked by the first overt sign of distress. So before that, the dog may be trying to cope with the situation, maybe pacing a little bit, maybe licking his lips, yawning, shaking off, 
maybe his ears are perked and he's alert, but he's really trying to tolerate this situation. And when the threshold comes, he's going to display his first sign, overt sign of distress. For example, it could be whining, it could be barking, howling, it could be destroying things, it could be eliminating in undesirable places, among others. And from that point on, as I mentioned before, the stimulus isn't going to stop being aversive until someone is back. So those signs are going to continue getting greater and greater and looking more intense until someone uh, comes back back to the house. Do dogs develop the signs of separation anxiety usually immediately when the owner leaves or does it take time for it to build up after the owner has gone? Because I've seen a little bit of both when people call me to help them. That's actually, I, I keep saying a great question, but that's actually a great question too, because There's a great variety of signs that a dog can display when left alone, and every dog is different. So there's no rule. Some dogs can do a lot of things. So some dogs can do only one thing, uh, and they can vary over time. So one of the things that we want to pay attention to, one of the common denominators of separation anxiety, is that if you haven't worked with that dog, so if that dog hasn't really being subject of a training program and hasn't learned to be alone for a certain, in a relaxed manner for a certain amount of time. And if that dog also has been exposed to being left alone on a regular basis, what's going to happen is that you're usually going to see that threshold happening within the first 30 minutes of absence. And in general, you actually see it after a few seconds. Sometimes it can be after a few minutes, but it's pretty common to see that the dog displays the first sign of anxiety and fear maybe within the first 10 seconds of being left alone after the door is closed. Okay, so there can be mild, there can be severe signs, uh, separation anxiety, severe cases. What are the worst signs of separation anxiety that you have seen? And what are the some of the worst that you've seen over the past year since COVID started? Hmm. <laughs> well, this is kind of a tricky and actually pretty interesting aspect of separation anxiety, because while we have a classification of severity, of levels of severity, we don't really use it too much. Why? Because the signs that a dog display when he suffers from separation anxiety, he's left the home alone, are only a manifestation of the underlying anxiety that the dog is experiencing at that time, which means that Well, everybody can react differently to the same thing. And that doesn't really mean that you are having a worse time than me. We can't really know that. The the only know, the only who knows that is actually the dog. And that's why getting caught in a classification that tells me that this, because it looks worse on, on my eyes, is this is more severe than this. It can bring us, you know, trouble. It can get us in trouble because we may think that one case is an emergency and we really have to work on it. And the other one isn't that hard. So we can wait a little bit, see if the dog gets better. And it, it's, it doesn't work that way. Both cases are an emergency. And here's where I love to give an example because I feel like it's very easy to understand that a dog with separation anxiety is panicking when alone. But sometimes it's different to, re- it's, it's difficult to relate to that. And so I usually give my clients and other trainers the example of something that they're truly, truly scared about, something that is something that they can't control, something that is scary for them. And in my particular case, I'm scared of moths, which is pretty ridiculous and funny, 
But, and I know that logically, right? But it's not something I can control. So when I'm exposed to a moth, I react in different ways. And those ways are just an expression of what I'm feeling at that moment. And some, and they are not voluntary. I just throw things and cry and run and seek for help. And if you think that maybe I have different alter egos, maybe some of those versions of me will react throwing things at the moth. Some others will react uh, running away, but nobody can really tell which version of me is actually having a worse time. So the only reason why we would maybe classify something as severe or more an emergency than others would be if there is some risk in terms of the dog injured himself, for example. Um, I have had this case, but this was previous prior to COVID, where a dog would self-injure herself. So she would start by crying and scratching the door. And if the owner didn't come back, she started chewing on her tail. And those, that is, it's risky because it's putting the dog in danger. Or dogs who, I had this dog who actually didn't have separation anxiety. After all, she suffered from confinement issues. And she had been left home alone in a crate for two years because they thought that that was the way to work on it. And she had lost eight teeth at the mm. point of uh, wow. our meeting. So yeah, so it can it can get you know like very very intense, but that doesn't mean that dogs who only did cry a little bit, which I saw one last week, who did that dog only once, just very softly throughout the whole absence, but that doesn't really tell me that that dog is having a less of a hard time. Wow, that's a great answer. So basically, we don't really need to classify it. We just need to if the owners think that the dog is having a problem, we need to help them resolve it rather than label it, and that's. A very similar answer when I asked Mike Shikashio about aggression. He said, we don't need to label it, whether it's aggression, it's behavior that we don't want, and we're going to try to change it by having their association different with the stimulus. And so now I understand your answer completely. It's dog behavior that we don't want, and we, you know, and the dog doesn't want either because it's, it's distress. It's making them stressed out. We want to try to help them and change it. And I get that completely. Exactly. What? Yeah, and that's that's a brilliant answer. What are the most common triggers that you see with separation anxiety? Is it I know when I get called, I I see triggers such as people getting their keys to leave and then the dog starts to have anxiety and starts to pant and starts to bark and then starts to run around and then do things like show signs that they are in distress or get their keys or get their shoes on or start to leave the house and leave the door. And I watched one of your webinars uh, at the Winter Summit where you showed a a video of of a lady leaving the house. And we're going to get into the treatment plan in just a second and how she just left the house for five seconds and then came back in and left the house for 10 seconds and came back in. But what are the most common triggers that you see? So first of all, once uh, the separation anxiety is triggered in that dog, because one of the things that is important to consider is that Separation anxiety can be triggered at any point of the dog's life. And so once it's triggered and the dog is exposed to being left alone, what starts happening is that at first the dog is only panicking and is afraid of being left alone, right? Only that is what triggers him. But the fear of being left alone, that that panic and that exposure, that regular basis exposure to that creates a state of anxiety surrounding the whole departure and preparation to the part of, or of the owners. 
And that can include anything from the alarm of the phone, uh, you know, going off in the morning to taking a shower to grabbing your keys, grabbing your uh, jacket, shoes, among others. And they will just become predictors of what's about to happen. So the dog who is in a state of alertness because he knows that every day this happens is going to start to pick on every little thing that tells him this is the time where I panic. This is emergency. This, this is, you know, where, where I, I can't deal with this situation. And the important thing though is that we will fold them in. We will incorporate them in a strategical way into the training program. So the dog can start relaxing with and, and accepting and tolerating uh, all of this different, we call them pre and post departure cues that the owner uses or grabs every time he's about to leave. Now, every case is different, and that's why it's very important to create your own list. So, in, if, and every member of the house has a different list. So it will depend on if you put, do you use a hat when you leave? Do you use a jacket? Do you use the shoes at home? Or you only put your shoes on when you're about to leave? Do you use your keys? Do you have a storm door? Do you uh, lock your door with a key when you go out? All of those little things, it's important to consider them and write them down so you can then start slowly incorporate them into your protocol, uh, uh, training protocol. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea it was that complex. You really have to do a thorough consultation and evaluation to find all of these things out. When you start working on treatment of separation anxiety, that must be the first step, right? Exactly. Well, the first, first step is actually running an alone time assessment. And on that alone time assessment, we will in use, incorporate all of those pre and post departure cues that the owner usually uses just so we can have a real feel of what's going on. And that alone time assessment is basically leaving and leaving something uh, set up either a camera that can record or some sort of device that allows you to serve your dog online. And you will leave the area. You will leave like if you were actually leaving in a realistic, organic way. And you're going to observe what happens. Because there is a lot of different things that could be happening instead of separation anxiety. Or it can be that it's separation anxiety. We call that separation-related problems. And separation-related problems Picture it as a big umbrella where there are a lot of different things that could be going on. And separation-related problems, we define them as things that the dog do that are undesirable for us when they're left alone. And that can be barking, that can be chewing on things, that can be eliminating, that can be many, many different things. But the, the point and the most important thing is that not all of them are going to be treated the same. And so during that assessment that I just mentioned, what we're going to do is we're going to pair those signs that we see with the body language of the dog, because that will put those signs in context and it will tell us if the dog is maybe just barking to something that he's seeing out of the window because I live in a very busy area, or maybe he's chewing on things because he's having a blast because he's just bored or he is peeing somewhere because he's not outstrained yet or that he is actually in distress. And if that's what we find, well, then we will start by creating that list of pre and post departure cues, and we will set up our training program to start working with him. So you can do a lot of this remotely, correct? Actually, everything is done remotely. I used to work online 
like fully online before COVID. <laughs> so for me, it wasn't a big difference. When COVID started, it was like, well, I, I, already, I was already here like on my desk all day. In fact, if a consultant or the trainer is actually there, it might even make things even worse because you really, the first thing you need to do and what you really need to monitor is what happens when the owner leaves from the camera. They have to record that and you have to look at that and analyze that. Exactly. exactly. On an ongoing basis. I mean, this is ongoing. So exactly. that you can have a measurable progress and chart a measurable progress that you used to be able to leave for only 30 seconds and the dog will go crazy. Now you're able to leave for 20 minutes. Yeah, actually, well, there are different parts of that. So one of the things is, yes, definitely, you're absolutely right. We want to do this online because it's much more realistic. People don't leave for work. Well, not now due to COVID anyways, but people don't naturally leave their houses with their trainer. (laughs) That's just not normal, right? They just leave their houses by themselves. So it's more natural, it's more realistic. And it also allows you as the professional to really observe things in detail because you're just sitting watching a screen. So you can really tell the the nuances of body language and make a better assumption of what's going on. That's one part of the story. And the other part of the story is that when you implement your training program, you actually want to be watching your dog throughout the whole program. So you do your sessions with a device that is already connected. You set something up so you can observe every single nuance of body language and everything he does during that session. So you can be proactive and design it based on what happened on the previous day. And the big, big, like golden rule is that you are never going to seek to put your dog over threshold ever again. So you're aiming for a dog who is relaxed and just doesn't care about what you're doing at some point. So you can stretch that duration that, as you well said before, was less than 30 seconds to an hour where the dog is sleeping or, or maybe just changing from one spot to another one, but in a very relaxed manner. So the process to treat separation anxiety, if you actually diagnose it as separation anxiety, can be quite lengthy and quite a process because like I told you when we, before we started this interview, I get people call me all the time and they say, my dog has separation anxiety and I need you to come over and fix it and I need it fixed by next week or next month or before Christmas or by Easter or whatever because we're going to be going away. And I have to leave my dog somewhere and that's just not going to work. And, you know, I don't take on those cases, obviously. So explain to the listeners how detailed and how long the process usually is if a dog is diagnosed with separation anxiety. So the first thing I want to mention is that when they, people ask me that, the example I gave, I give them is, let's think that I want to overcome my fear of moths. Because I already told them at that point that I'm afraid of moths, right? And you guys already know that. So let's say I go to a therapist and I start working. Uh, I, I want to work uh, to just overcome this fear. And I tell the therapist, you know what? I truly want to do this, but I have a trip to Costa Rica in three weeks. And I'm going to be in the jungle and I'm going to be surrounded by moths. The cabin where I'm going to sleep is going to be full of moths. And I need to overcome this before I go back there because otherwise I'm not going to have fun. What do you think the therapist is going to tell me? <laughs> Probably going to tell me like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know how long it's going to take you. You're the right. only one who can tell me that. Right. So due to this being an emotional disorder, we can't really set the pace 
of the progress. That's something that only the dog will tell us. It's the way that I usually like to think about it and tell others to think about it is to think of this in months and not the, in not weeks. It's a long process. It can be done in a simple way. It is effective, but it takes time. And there are regressions along the way, so it's not a linear process. Nobody learns in a linear way. We don't do it either. So when you learn something, all of you, if you have a hobby and you're learning something, let's say I'm learning to play the piano. Some days I will be great and some days I will forget what I learned. And I will have to revisit and practice again and review what I had learned so I can remember and then I'll move on to the next stage. It's exactly the same type of process. So the only one that's going to set the pace is the dog. And the speed of the progress will depend on the plasticity of the dog, on the environmental changes or environmental factors that could be uh, altering things, and of the participation of the owners or guardians. So the owners do have to participate. They have to do something with the dog basically every day, probably. They have to do a little bit of work with the dog every day or as much as they possibly can. Because just like the analogy of learning a musical instrument, if I put a piano in front of somebody and they've never played the piano, they're not going to play Beethoven. They're going to go through the exercises of the keys and the chords, the finger exercises, and they're going to start with chopsticks, the, the song chopsticks, which is just, you know, two keys. And then they're going to go from there and progress. But a lot of people, they think that when they start to get involved with something like this, they're going to hand it over to a trainer or behavior consultant or something, and it's all going to be taken care of. But the owners have to do the work. They have to put in the work, right? Exactly, because they are the ones who are leaving. Right. So I can, I can work with a dog being the trainer, and I would have to go to the house and practice leaving the dog, but that's not going to be transfer in a way. It's not going to transfer well to the owners. It's the owners with their own pre-imposed departure cues and and just being the, themselves instead of me, you know? So it's, it's important for them to practice. Actually, if you have a household with more than one member of the, who lives there, everybody will have to practice. So the dog gets used to every person leaving, every combination together, separate. And yes, you can add those things along the way, but it's important for everybody to know that every person has to practice. How does separation anxiety happen? How do dogs get separation anxiety? Has there ever been any studies on this? And do you have any information on how this even happens? Because I know from some of the people that have contacted me, separation anxiety is not there one moment and then all of a sudden it's there. So what are some of the things that you know that this is what can contribute to separation anxiety happen, and what can owners do to help prevent separation anxiety from happening? Ah, that's the magic question, prevent, <laughs> prevention. We will talk about that because it's a tricky one. So there is ton of, tons of information out there, right? And I'm sure that it has happened to you too, Dale, that when people call you to talk about separation anxiety and let you know that their dog has separation anxiety, they have already searched the internet, had, to, had talked to other you know, friends, colleagues, acquaintances, and they're sure that they were the ones who blame. They, they are guilty of triggering separation anxiety in their dogs and they feel guilty. Many times they tell me with a face that people can't see from here, but 
they they squint and they say, oh yeah, I let my dog sleep with me. I probably triggered this this situation, this disorder. And so the reality is that we aren't sure what causes separation anxiety. We think that there is a genetic predisposition that when paired with different environmental factors can the, the onset of separation anxiety can be triggered. And those environmental factors are usually change or traumatizing events for the dog. It, they don't have to be traumatizing for us, but any changes such as, for example, moving, traveling an airplane, long drive, change of the members of the house, someone moved out, someone moved in, lost of someone, uh, separate uh, from the litter, from the mom at some point of his life, and a traumatizing background, but not necessarily. I've had many, many dogs who come from breeders, very good qualified breeders, and they still show separation anxiety when they arrive. Medical issues, other behavior problems, all of those things could trigger the onset. And as you well mentioned, it's just, it happens in the blink of an eye. So the dog didn't have anything before and the day after the dog experience is experiencing this problem. And that's why it can happen at any moment of the dog's life. And it's not as we thought before, always presented in adolescent dogs. Now, due to this, it's not possible to prevent it because we can't prevent something we don't know the cause of. It's impossible. Like we can't remove that cause because we don't know right. what causes it, right? right. Mm -hmm. But we do, we can do certain things to lower the chances as much as we can with no guarantees, of course, to have this problem with our dogs. And that ideally goes into help your dog being flexible enough. So when he's exposed to changes in his life, throughout his life, those changes don't represent something that is really traumatizing for them. That means that when they're puppies or, or after you adopt them, if, even if they were adults, try to teach them slowly to be okay in different setups and different environments. Just, you know, like spend time with them in different places, travel and make it comfortable for the dog. Make it something that is a good experience for your dog. And the same goes for absences. Even now that we're not leaving the houses, some countries are actually in quarantine. Still, the ideal would be if you just got a dog, try to do some absences if your dog doesn't suffer from separation anxiety and try to do it in a way that is periodically, even if it's 20 minutes a day, even if you have to go and sit in your car, just so your dog gets used to the flow of being left alone. And it's not, it doesn't happen all of a sudden once you are back at work. I got a puppy last May. I had a dog that died in, in April of last year. I had him for 12 years. He had no separation anxiety. He was great. I see a lot of behavior problem knowing puppies that I train. So I made sure that Dixie, and she'll be one on Valentine's Day coming up here on Sunday. Aww. And I left her in the crate the first night I had her for an hour. She barked for two minutes because my next door neighbor told me and he and after that, she never could care less if she was in the crate or left alone at home ever again. She just got used to it right away because I made it really fun for her and I made it really calming for her. And I just put her in the crate, said goodbye and left. I made it very nonchalant, very easy for her to get comfortable when I left. And I still crate her because 
She's a mini Australian shepherd and she will chew. <laughs> and she will chew things up in my house. She's chewed my MacBook Pro computer cable several times while I was in the shower. So I know I, she will chew. I have to keep her in the crate. I go, Dixie, let's go. I got to go. I go with your crate. She just goes in the crate and lays down. No problems. What I did was I just made it very comfortable for her to be easily left alone and have no issues with it. Are there certain tips that you can give to new puppy owners to have the success rate that I did? <laughs> no guarantees again, but <laughs> you can try many things, of course. Uh, so the first thing and most important one is that I would recommend to have certain type of device so you can monitor your dog. Because that will give you a lot of information. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you only want that device if your dog suffers from separation anxiety. But if you just adopted the dog and want to start leaving him alone and want to make sure that things are going well, best way is to have eyes there, right? And be able to spy on him. And because that will also tell you if your dog is relaxing faster and faster. How is your, like, whatever you implemented working? That's one of the things that I would do. And the other thing is that if you are going to crate your dog, I would make sure to first teach your dog to be very, very happy in a crate without you leaving. So first of all, the dog should love his crate, his or her crate, at other moments of the day as well. And then if you're sure that your dog is great in the crate and he loves it, then you can start introducing absences in the crate. Some dogs will be super resilient and will ad adapt right away, such as, you know, what you were saying about Dixie. She just is a she, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> because we use that name in, in, in Spanish, like for, for oh, really? uh, both. So, yeah. Oh, just for men too, huh? Okay. Yeah. So, in, in her case, she did great, just adapted to it. And that's amazing. And many dogs could do that. But monitoring will allow you to see if a dog doesn't do really good in that particular setup and will tell you or let you know that you have to work on it. Now, some dogs do suffer from confinement issues. Some dogs do suffer from, from confinement issues and from separation anxiety together. That's pretty common. But also some of them only suffer from confinement issues. And so that means that when they are in a crate or in a restricted area, they react. But once they're free in the house, they are totally okay. So if that's your case, and if you see a lot of reaction leaving your puppy in a crate the first time, you would want to evaluate, assess with your dog free in the house for a few minutes if you leave and see if there is any difference. Because that will give you answers and that will, in a way, allow you to set up the environment for success. If you find out that your dog is really having a hard time being in a crate, is suffering, is not, it's, it's just not working right. It's maybe better that you put all that energy that you are thinking to put into the crate training into having a dog who is reliable at, at home. So you can quickly leave him free in the house without him panicking anymore. So it will depend on the dog, but that's why monitoring and observing will give you so many answers. Great. So with COVID over the past almost year now, people are getting and families are getting puppies. They're all home. Both the husband and wife are home. The kids are home. The dog gets used to the family. Now the dog's a year old. This is the opposite of Dixie's situation because I leave Dixie home alone a lot. But the dog is home. And then all of a sudden, the family leaves and they go back to work and the kids are going to school. And then they find out that there is a potential problem. 
What can owners do to get ready for their departures as the world starts to get somewhat normalized so that their dog can get used to them? I know you've hinted on it already here, but I just, this is kind of a review so we can start wrapping this up. But what can they do to help get their dog used to them leaving in small doses before they leave all day long? The first, and I will repeat it, (laughs) I will repeat it over and over again. The first of all, get a camera or a device that allows you to observe your dog. And then after that, start doing a few absences. Even if you don't have to go anywhere, even if work hasn't resumed yet and school hasn't resumed yet, in person, I mean, and start observing what happens. If everything goes okay, you can continue doing absences, right? If everything seems to be working, if your dog maybe won a couple of times and then settle for the rest of the absence and really settle and you can see about a language that suggests that your dog is relaxed, that is not alert, start doing absences in a variable way so you will do it every day you won't go 20 30 40 50 60 one hour two hours you will go maybe one day you will do 20 minutes the other day you'll do 40 then 30 then 50 and so on and make sure that your dog adjusts to this so it's not a big change for him once everybody goes to to back to work and school and and he has to be left alone completely if you see that something looks wrong and you leave your dog alone the first time and you see that your dog panics and he doesn't stop the first first thing is if your dog was confined try it out free in the house it could be only confinement issues if you try free in the house and you still see signs but those signs escalate over time remember we talk about it about about how separation anxiety behaves if you see that that doesn't stop until you're back then you may have a dog who suffers from separation anxiety. If that's the case, you will want to suspend absences while you work on the training program because you can't expose a dog to something that he's afraid of and at the same time trying to teach him to be okay with it. You can't have someone over threshold and then put him below threshold and teach him, okay, you know what? You should be, you should be okay with this. You should understand that this, in this particular moment, things are going to be okay. You shouldn't panic. And then, of course, after you, your absences are managed. And with that, I mean that the dog has always, he, he has to be with a human at all times, not necessarily you, but a human at all times. At that point, you are ready to implement a training program to overcome the problem. That's at that point where they would have to contact somebody like yourself, a certified separation separation anxiety trainer. How do you? Yes. How do you? How do you? It's a. It, that's what it is. It's a. It's a CSAT certified separation anxiety trainer, right? Exactly. And you've gone through. In addition to being a vet, you've gone through extensive training to learn how to treat separation anxiety and how to coach people on over having helping the dog overcome this issue. So how if somebody gets to the point where they think that their dog has separation anxiety, how do they contact you? Because I'm not a separation anxiety expert. I don't handle separation anxiety myself. I always refer it out. I get calls for it. But how do they contact you? How do they find you? Can you tell us about your website again and the course you offer there for dog owners and dog trainers? Yes, sure. Thank you. So uh, my website is separationanxietydog.com. Pretty easy. 
And if they find out or they think their dog might be suffering from this disorder, there are two different ways that they can get help. Definitely find a CSAT, Certified Separation Anxiety Trainer, because they're going to be able to help you throughout this process. Personally, I offer one-on-one private daily support uh, training, basically. Uh, I coach them day by day in that format. And the other format is the course you were mentioning, which is training uh, like a do-it-yourself separation anxiety course. And that is available for dog owners and dog trainers. It's made in a very, very easy to follow way. It's uh, done by video lessons that the goal is for you to to watch them and then achieve the goals that were set in that lesson before you get into the next one. So I basically join you during the whole process of helping your dog so you don't feel lonely and you can burn stages one at a time. That is so awesome. So it's such a great resource for people. And I'm very happy that it's going so well for you. This is this has been an amazing uh, opportunity for me, and I hope our listeners to learn more about separation anxiety. A lot of stuff in here I did not know. Again, because I'm not an expert in this, you have to be an expert to know all of these things. And it sounds like separation anxiety, if it is diagnosed as such, is a very complex, lengthy process to treat, and it requires a lot of patience, management, a lot of education, and that's where you come in. So. I want to thank you so much for providing this information to our listeners. I'm going to put all of Moore's information, website, all of that stuff in the notes of this episode, and we're going to end it right now. If you have any other questions about separation anxiety, feel free to reach out to us at puppytalkpodcast.com, and I'll forward you her information, or just go directly to her website, separationanxietydog.com. So once again, thank you, Maura. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Dale. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I had lots of fun. This is Dale Buchanan, host of Puppy Talk Podcast. I have an announcement of a new book that I just published called Potty Training Your Puppy. It's available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback, soon to be available on audiobook. You can find out all the details of this book using the link in the show notes. It's called Potty Training Your Puppy. It's a comprehensive book with a simple and effective way to help potty train your puppy. And it really works. Check out the link in the show notes.